Okay, so Act 4, Scene 7, uh, we find ourselves in Alexandria and it is the second battle of the play. Um, and again, it is accompanied with kind of uh, vivid music. So there is alarm, there's drum and trumpets, and it is used to suggest the battle which happens off stage. Um, Agrippa's opening lines suggest that uh, Caesar's forces are retreating before Antony's fierce attacks. Um, so retire, we have engaged ourselves too far um, and they exit and the alarms come in and Scarus enters wounded. Um, and although he's wounded, he's jubilant and victorious. Um, so this is a, a moment in which Antony has won the battle and, and it's a brief moment of redemption for the character, albeit it's going to be short-lived because by the end of Act 4, in a few scenes' time, he chooses to commit suicide um, after his loss in another battle against Caesar. But this is a potential moment of brief redemption for him. Um, and they are celebratory and good humoured. Um, we see that, you know, Scarus talks about the idea of he's a, you know, an outstanding soldier in the face of adversity. He, he remains positive. He talks about how he has a wound here that was like a T, but now is made in H, so it is bigger. Um, and again, the, you know, the, there's a retreat far off. So there's loads of sound going on here um, that Shakespeare as a dramatist is using to suggest um, the kind of proximity of the battles. Um, and that kind of reminder of, you know, they retire um, and that, you know, I have yet room for six scotches. So in other words, gashes. So Scarus is kind of essentially saying, I'm re I get ready to fight them again. I've got room for more wounds. Um, and Eros comes in. Antony's army is going to pursue Caesar's retreating forces. Um, and he uses, Scarus uses the metaphor of, of kind of them being a hunter. He says, we snatch him up as we take hairs behind to sport, to maul a runner um, so that they're going to chase them and they're going to take them down then um, and uh, the kind of slightly comic ending um, you know Antony praises the efforts of his men and Scarus describes how he's going to you know halt after in other words I'm going to hobble after you so there's a sense of kind of black comedy so it's it's quite a light-hearted moment after a battle um, but we have to remember it's it's going to be very very short-lived so Act 4, Scene 8, um, we are on the battlefield, so another kind of change in um, location. And that kind of, you know, brief, you know, signs of war and happiness is, is going to change actually quite quite rapidly within uh, the rest of this scene. Um, but we see a, a kind of uh, another moment in which Antony and Cleopatra are united. Um, he greets her um, as the conqueror of his heart, essentially, that she has defeated him in that manner. Um, but he, he kind of um, speaks, uh, he talks about, you know, each man has shown all Hectors, and Hector was a Greek warrior hero, so there is that kind of classical illusion. And he, you know, says, enter the city, clip your wives, so like, brace your wives, your friends, tell them, you know, your your glories. Um, and uh, there's this brilliant, grotesque imagery of, you know, whilst they with joyful tears wash the congealment from your wounds and kiss the honoured gaseous hole. You know, that imagery of war, but it's kind of heralded with praise and honour and love and affection. And it's just another stark reminder of how much the identity of being a um, a warrior and a fighter is important to to kind of Roman identity and in particular Antony's kind of self worth and his value as well. And then there's a moment in which he 
offers Cleopatra's hand to Scarus, and we are reminded of that the last time a, a subordinate did this, Antony's reaction wasn't um, the most rational. He beat and whipped, uh, wasn't it, Thidius? Um, so there's this kind of uh, reference of give me thy hand to this great fairy. And again, that the, the kind of um, metaphor of Cleopatra being uh, described as a fairy suggests again that kind of um, the connections that she holds across the play um, as being linked to the supernatural or that she's some sort of kind of enchantress um, and has this kind of great power um, or hold over over men. Um, and Cleopatra kind of offers her hand to him. Um, and in the last bit after he kisses it, he says to her, um, essentially chain mine armed neck, uh, they're right on the pants triumphing. And it's this, again, this they embrace, but it's this lovely um, assimilation of kind of lover and soldier imagery returns for, uh, for Antony. Um, and she uses, you know, the hyperbole of describing him as Lord of Lords, infinite virtue. So like everlasting courage, you know, um, essentially the world's great snare that Antony almost just kind of, defied the rules of the natural world by defeating Caesar you know he had so many things against him and he's come out kind of victorious and you know we're we're, we're aligned to kind of think similar to Cleopatra's um kind of imagery there that it's it's kind of surprising that Antony has done this he's he must have kind of some some kind of magnitude about him as well um and I love the next little bit it's it's another kind of stark reminder of how this is um a story about two characters who are in the much more mature stages of their um careers and of their kind of love affair he describes her as you know my nightingale we have beat them to their beds um what girl though grey do something mingle with our younger brown we have a brain that nourishes our nerves and can get gold for gold of youth and I love that imagery that you know age has given them experience and um wisdom essentially will allow them to hold their nerve against youth and, and kind of beat them in a sense um whether or not is that a boast is that true um it, it's it, it's something again which we know that caesar's not going to kind of back down potentially so is antony's newfound confidence going to be short-lived will he will he kind of he'll soon eat his words essentially is something that we might be thinking at that point um but scaris kisses cleopatra's hand and we have to remember that that's a real honor um, because Antony saw it as an act of dishonour prior and, and the idea that Cleopatra had um, betrayed him, whereas here there is an honour with that. Uh, he hath fought today as if a god and hate of mankind had destroyed in such a shape. So, you know, Scarus is essentially the epitome of an outstanding soldier. Um, and it, it is a little bit kind of ironic because when he, um, in Act 3, scene 13, I think it was, his reaction was very different. Um, and Cleopatra says that, you know, that she will give an armour all of gold. It was a king's. So that kind of, that value and worth um, in, in terms of Scarus's um, decisions and his bravery on the battlefield and that kind of sense of triumph in this as well. Um, and they, Antony's final piece parks on that, that vibrant speech of celebration and triumph and how they want to make that a public declaration you know through Alexandria make a jolly march so again that that idea that this is all for the public this is all for external validation um and for for kind of 
the I'm trying to find the words. Uh, I suppose it's that this idea of linking into that um, EMIG article that we're reading before about Shakespeare and the celebrity that every single decision that Antony or Cleopatra make within the play has a um, a public reason. Um, it's it's for for something external, whether it's for validity or reassurance, and we get that here as well. Um, that it's this is you know essentially waving the flag of victory. Okay, so as kind of typical structure-wise in this um, act in particular, we shift to Caesar's camp. So we move kind of back and forth between Antony's perspective and Caesar's perspective. Um, so we have another shift in location, um, and it's uh, Caesar's camp near Alexandria. Um, and it is nighttime at this point, um, and the setting is kind of rather melancholic, and it's a much more subdued scene compared to the previous one, um, it's gloomy and it encapsulates Ina Barbus's depression and unfortunately his um, death in this scene. Um, so it's worthwhile thinking about kind of the, the, um, the, the, contra the contrast um, and the juxtaposition of two very different moods, moving from a scene of triumph to uh, a scene of despair. Um, so the soldiers and the sentries are watching him. Uh, Ina Barbus is praying to the moon to break his heart for his treachery. Um, and before he dies, he begs Antony to forgive his disloyalty. So they're kind of watching him. And he says to the moon, oh, bear me witness night. Um, and again, that he's alone. He's being observed. Uh, we almost take on a, the similar role to the sentries and the watchmen. Um, he's alone. He's isolated. Um, there are kind of lots of things happening um, theatrically to, to suggest his you know, overwhelming depression and melancholic state at this point. And they listen to him. Be witness to me, O thy blessed moon. And we know that the moon is... Um, it's a common feature which is associated with sadness, with depression, with melancholy, but also kind of mental instability as well and extreme emotions. It's, it's something which has kind of come up over and over again in literature and you can do a little bit of research behind that as well. Um, he interestingly describes himself in that third person, per Ina Barbus did before thy face repent. So he casts himself in the role of, you know, the sinner in a sense that he he's desperate for um, forgiveness. And again, that kind of, when we were looking previously, that echoes of Christ and Judas comes up again uh, here as well. Um, the moon is personified as a sovereign mistress of true melancholy. Um, and he begs for death because he says that life is a rebel to my will may hang no longer on me. He's just begging for death, essentially, that he doesn't want to be alive anymore. And some of the imagery he uses describes how his heart is breaking. He's like, you know, throw my heart against the flint and hardness of my fault. Um, and I love that kind of like um, fractured nature of kind of the imagery of that uh, his his very soul and his heart is um, rejecting against itself, that he knows he's to blame for, for all of these different you know, for his different emotions. He knows he's the catalyst for all of that. Um, and his dying words, you know, when he begs for forgiveness, forgive me in thine own particular, let the world rank me and register a master lever and a fugitive. He begs forgiveness and he never excuses his fault. He never kind of says, this is Antony's fault that I'm ending in this way. He totally um, acknowledges that his decision to you know, break with his master and um, deny a, a good leader, essentially, fellowship, um, is something which he believes is worthy of death. And his there's real sympathy in his death because his final words are Antony, like that's his, his dying words as, as his heart breaks. And 
it's always one of those deaths where we think, oh, how does he die? Because there's no explicit reason for it depicted on, pa on the page, but it's suggestive of that um, he dies of a broken heart, that the uh, Jacobean audience would be acutely aware that they associated that a heart could literally explode or break um, with extreme emotions like grief and sadness. And that's something which we still use in terms of metaphor, you know, uh, um, my, you know, in terms of grief, that our heart is broken, essentially, and they, they believe that that could have physical um, effects. So Purina Barbus is gone, um, and it is a, it's a death in which it's sympathetic, but somewhat honourable, because he admits his flaws and kind of begs for forgiveness um, for the end of it. So it's 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 kind of a multifaceted death in many ways. Um, and they even describe, they, do, they don't know how he, they, they haven't realised that he's died yet. So they're on, you know, line 25, they describe it as sleeping um, as well. And then they realise the hand of death have wrought him, that he's, he's died. Um, and we have to remember that this is the first death on stage that we've seen. And it's going to, death is going to become ever ever creeping more advanced in terms of action on stage we've had a lot of deaths off stage consider all of the nameless characters within battle but this is the first um kind of one and it's a sign of impending doom for the successive scenes and by the kind of you know in the with, by the end of act four eros is dead uh antony has a kind of botched suicide attempt and then we know of cleopatra charmian and iris's death in scene five as well or in act five sorry um so it's it's building up rapidly and and that kind of fact that this happens at night helps to uh, it, you know create that sense of foreboding for us as an audience too and now we have a number of small successive scenes uh with scene 10 scene 11 in which we are at another battlefield um so the, the antony has learned that caesar's navy has put to sea and decides to do likewise um and caesar orders his land army to maintain a defensive position and antony leaves to observe the sea battle and scars is awaiting the outcome um we, at this point, are a little bit wary because we know that Caesar seems to have an advantage at sea over Antony. Um, so there is that kind of unease uh, that ultimately his tactics don't really match his other soldierly virtues. And the irony is that we know he will fail as at Actium they met at sea. Um, so he does say, you know, I would, they'd fight in the air or fire or the air, we'd fight there too. But this it is. Our foot upon the hills joining the sea shall stay with us. Order for sea is given. Um, there is that kind of confidence that Antony has. So essentially, you know, that there's he'd be able to beat them in the four elements, you know, water, air, uh, land, fire. Um, and there's that kind of earth supernatural quality to his soldiership. He's confident of success, but we as an audience are very familiar with how his arrogance the last time prior battle to see at Actium um, essentially proved to be flawed. Um, and had disastrous consequences. And we know that the consequences to this failure are going to be even greater. Um, and we think a brief flash of reactions as they prepare and watch on shore with Caesar. So again, lots of the time in terms of how the stage tends to be kind of a cross-cutting, that the two men are on stage and, and they both prepare their, we, we see their perspective and their preparations for battle. And we are invited ultimately to make a comparison between the two men. So Caesar says, but being charged, we will be still by land. So in other words, we'll wait to the veils and hold our best advantage. So that kind of, um, we will essentially wait, we'll hold it, but we'll see how the battle for sea happens first. 
So Act 1412, we are on the battlefield. Um, Antony decides to leave to observe the battle. He says, I'll bring the word straight how it is like to go. And he exits. Um, and again, the alarm are far off as at sea fight. So again, that kind of use of music and sound to suggest um, what's happening outside of the main action on stage. And Scarus awaits the outcome, um, but he describes lots of strange omens of doom and they help to create unease. So this image of uh, that swallows have built in Cleopatra's seals their nests. Augurs say they not know how, they cannot tell the grimly. Um, so there is this kind of strange omens of doom and they're somewhat ironic and they help to create a bit of an unease that we know that Antony is not going to win this battle and he enters rather quickly afterwards and he tells us of the sudden surrender of the Egyptian fleet. He is enraged that Cleopatra has seemingly in his mind portrayed him for a second time and the consequences are huge and if we look at his language we see his anger um, towards Cleopatra you know all is lost this vile Egyptian has betrayed me um, He, there's no explanation of the desertion given here compared to her desertion in the Battle of Actium but it's he denounces her in such a graphic manner you know he, he describes her as almost like an it not detached this vile Egyptian um, and it's directed towards her he even, you know, uses this, which is one of the most striking uh, quotations in the whole play, triple turned whore. And what he means by that is, you know, Julius Caesar, Pompey, and then him, that she, she, he, he attacks her just like how other Roman men have denounced Cleopatra. He condemns her sexuality. The irony and the hypocrisy being that that's been the thing that he's been drawn towards as well. And um, he says, my heart needs only wars on thee. So it's like she's crushed every little bit of love that he might have had for her um he's enraged he's angry um and it kind of knows no limitations at this point um and scaris excerpts he this then becomes the moment of soliloquy we see him um on his own and there is an almost kind of um chorus like function when he says oh son thy uprise shall i see no more um that it's it's like darkness is descending there's an element of pathetic fallacy that the um antony knows he can't live through this um death is the only option um again when we're thinking about darkness and light and the connotations that they have we can see that shakespeare's playing around with that in the imagery he uses that personification again of fortune so fortune and antony part here and he's right it's almost kind of choral like in function um that he has to he knows he's he has to die he knows that he is that fortune is no longer on his side anymore um and he goes in to talk about lots of imagery of betrayal and loyalty. He talks about the hearts that spanieled me at heels. So kind of, you know, his followers like dogs to whom I give their wishes do melt their sweets and blossoming Caesar. So the idea that people can be fickle. Um, and it's again that idea of like um, dissolving. So people kind of appearing and then disappearing comes up again. Um, and he describes himself as this pine is barked that overtopped them all. So he describes himself as as pine. And it's almost like he's been stripped bare. He, he's fallen from grace. He's got nothing to give anymore. And again, that betrayed. He He's a betrayed man. And he feels at this point that like the person who should have been closest to him, Cleopatra, has betrayed him. After he's just learned that Enobarbus has betrayed him, as in his other followers have betrayed him. Um, and actually, when he's backed into a corner, he becomes despairing angry 
um, and frustrated. And in many ways, we get, we have to kind of understand what, what's going on in terms of the psyche at this point of the play. He's lost everything at this point, including himself. Like he no longer knows himself. If, his, if he's not a great soldier, then who is he in, in his eyes? Um, but he blames her rather than himself, this false soul of Egypt. And again, we might, as an audience, if we're thinking alternative argument, is Antony somewhat deluded that at this point yet he hasn't fully acknowledged his role in all of this and that he has had a massive hand to play in his own downfall. Um, it's easier to, you know, we, as we were looking with streetcar, it's always easier to attack than to defend. And Antony seems to be attacking right now and he's attacking Cleopatra. And again, he describes her as uh, a right gypsy hath it fast and loose beguiled me to the very heart of loss. Um, so that again, really derogatory in terms of how he's describing her um, in, a, in very illegitimate terms. Um, when she enters, he even says, you know, ah, thou spell. So like that kind of, again, repeated language of how that she's kind of enchanted people or put a spell on them. And again, but this time it's sinister. It's not the, you know, the bewitching nature of Cleopatra. It's that she is sinful and inherently evil in, in many different ways. Um, and that kind of why, why are you angry? And he describes her as a blemish as well. Um, he'll he'll say that he will essentially, he's like, go away or I will blemish Caesar's triumph. So in other words, I, I kind of, I will threaten to hurt you and spoil you as a trophy of war. He's so angry. It's almost like his fingers are tingling because he wants to hit her. He wants to beat her at this point. Um, and then he's he kind of, just wants to destroy her face and ridicule her. And it's a really graphic and callous attack on Cleopatra from Antony. He describes her, you know, he's like, let him take thee and hoist thee up to the shining plebeians. You know, you're essentially the greatest spot of all thy sex, the hyperbole. And the idea of, you know, you're monster-like. Um, let patient Octavia ply thy visage up with her prepared nails. Um, he's kind of adapted the unsympathetic Roman view of Cleopatra at this point, and he attacks her in terms of um, her sexuality, her looks, that he wants her to be humiliated through the streets of Rome, and even more so humiliated by Octavia as well. Um, and she exits. Essentially, she's terrified of Antony at this point. He's slightly, his anger and the attacks that he lies at her are really vicious, and I think she's genuinely frightened at this point that Antony's kind of seen red at this point and he potentially could be capable of doing this um even though we know it's somewhat misdirected this is it's not fair for it to be launched at her feet um because we we know that you know it seems to be fortuitous it was destined by fate that Antony would not win over Caesar we can't blame Cleopatra for that and his final soliloquy at this point is essentially where his rage is, again, boundless. He says, but better twere thou fellst into my fury, for one death might have prevented many. In other words, like, if I should have killed you, because that might have then saved the lives of other people, because I wouldn't have then fought these ridiculous wars. And he vows to kill her. Essentially, the witch shall die. And again, that kind of supernatural, sinful imagery of her being described as a witch. Um, we can't go unnoticed. Um, 
And he uses, there's a classical allusion to the shirt of Nessus upon me. Um, and if you've got the um, the Cambridge School Shakespeare, there's a really good description of it. So um, Nessus was a centaur mortally wounded by Hercules, gave a shirt soaked with his poison blood to Hercules' wife, saying it would be his act of love to charm to win back Hercules' affections. So he uses that idea of, you know, that classical illusion of betrayal, essentially. But there's something ironic about that. Um, and it's because, you know, Antony is loyal to his followers, inspires their loyalty. And this sudden change of fortune, which is now fallen from focuses on Caesar. So there, there's an element of kind of irony in which um, he describes um, th that that kind of classical illusion. Um, but he vows to kill her. You know, she dies for it, essentially. And that kind of the shame and humiliation that Antony feels that she has brought upon him, you know, to the young Roman boy, she hath sold me. Um, that this is this is a humiliation and Antony needs to kind of seek revenge for for what he feels is Cleopatra's fault for his fallen character. We as an audience might feel very differently though at this point too. And we have another very brief scene with Act 4, scene 13, where it shifts to Cleopatra's perspective. And she, you know, there's lots of hyperbole in um, some of the metaphor that she uses. She describes that he's more mad than Telamon for his shield. The boar of Thessaly was never so embossed. And again, so you can have a look at the kind of Greek mythology to what she references at that point. You know, Telamon, um, like Ajax, was a Greek hero who raged at not being given the shield of the dead Achilles. Um, so that idea that he's just not thinking rationally at this point um and she's she's genuinely terrified and charmian's essentially suggestion is that they go to the monument so the a monument is is essentially um the the kind of burial place uh, you know a funeral kind of monument and again it's another repeated image of death which helps to evoke tension and she comes up Charmian comes up with the idea of lock yourself and send him word that you're dead the soul and body rive no more imparting than greatness going off in other words that if he hears you're dead that actually it might make all of his rage and anger dissipate and make him see more clearly it's dangerous game though, isn't it? And that's what we know. It seems to be a potentially decision which might be reckless or foolish because rather than him running towards her to see her, Antony decides to take his own life. And then the messenger comes back with the, the image of it was all a ploy to get you to, to kind of realise that Cleopatra was not to, 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 um, to blame for for kind of his feelings. Um, so there is essentially agrees she's like to the monument uh, go tell him i have slain myself say that the last i speak was antony so again that antony's name was the last in her breath kind of a little bit of an echo on um you know barbara's kind of ending and she's like word it pretty piteously so she is kind of fearful of his wrath bring me how he takes my death um and there is these kind of you know we see her fear and her terror playing out in very similar ways to how she wanted the report of Octavia to come in and the games that she's played previously um, in terms of, you know, lying to see how a character will respond to certain information. But we know that this lie in inverted commas is, is going to have disastrous consequences for both of them. <laughs> 